cannot believe August is almost over. Feels like August. Dog days, man. It does. Dog days. But it's like the summer just blew by. Yeah, yeah. My, yeah. my daughter's back in school. I don't know where to, I don't know where it went. Where, uh, where are we at with fire season? Uh, there was uh, one fire. There was a little fire. There have been some little ones. Yeah, fire season, they say, is year-round. You talk to the firemen there, it's year-round. Uh, the uh, no, it, it, in theory, it go. It starts in July in Southern California. Yeah, uh, and uh, you know when you're inland, Pasadena, the Valley, uh, certainly Lancaster and Riverside, those kinds of areas. Those those areas will burn in July and 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 August for sure. Yeah. Uh, where I'm at, that's basically um, anywhere from the end of September to the beginning of December. Ah. Uh. Yeah. So it, not out of not out of the zone yet. Not out of the zone yet. That's when the Santa Ana winds kick up. Yeah, the Santa Ana winds really kick up. Uh, you know, starting the end of September, go all the way through October and November. In October, and November are the, are the deadly months. Sometimes they go into December, but you know, by the, by about mid December, we're starting to get rain and winter's on on its way. And we're yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah. So we're we're good for now, but uh, you know the the interesting news of late. Some very interesting pieces uh, have been running about the, the the way producer deals are evaporating at the studios. Mm. They're all about the franchise. There's nothing left for producers to do to develop material. They don't want them bringing material in. Yeah, the studios have these development divisions who should have been doing the work all along. By the way, these producer deals proliferating as a phenomenon of the '80s. And uh, the uh, Sips and Bruckheimer, uh, yeah, all that stuff. All those, yeah, yeah, all that stuff. Uh, you know, you used to be an exec with the studio; they lay you off, but they give you producer deal. Yeah, and then you can bring stuff in, and they, they you know, they pay for an office and 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 an overhead. Well, why'd you even fire me as a? Now you're paying more. You get it? You know what I'm saying? It's like you were paying me, say, three, four hundred thousand dollars and and bonuses, and now you're paying me five million dollars for overhead and acquisitions. Yeah, plus, my company owns a piece of this movie now. Yeah, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. So anyway, I'm 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 sad to see a lot of them go because it's where if you're an independent, that's a writer mm-hmm. or a director or producer or, or you know somebody else, that's where you go. You yeah. go for their money, but now now they're the, the business is changing. It's changing again. Again, I mean, there was there was still is to a certain extent. Yeah. Uh, the period of the mighty mega agencies, CAAs mm-hmm. and William Morris, and and them having everyone in house, and basically brokering deals, and studios became nothing but distribution entities. Yep. Uh, you know, pay for P yeah. and A, uh, and and put the movie out. But we, but it, you know, the, the the creative team was over here had nothing to do with the studio it's at true. all. You know, that's true. So you know, I don't know it's all changing. Uh, and now, frankly, um, uh, you look, and uh, under the Netflix umbrella is where everyone seems to want to be. It is, but if Netflix money dries up, then what? Yeah. Well, then there's then there's a contraction again. Yeah. A lot of people are going to be out of work. Yeah. So I'm hoping it doesn't dry up. I'm hoping it changes. I don't think Netflix's money Netflix's money is going to dry up, but I do think that they're going to change their business model, tighten the belt. A little well, they bit. have to. They have to. Yeah. yeah. That's, a, that's, a, that's a given. It's, they're not Amazon. Uh, yeah, yeah. They're not yeah, backstopped. He can over there and make he can make goofy movies forever. Yeah. Uh, Amazon Amazon makes enough money clears enough money in profit every year off of just selling junk on the internet unrelated to the movie business to buy and sell every hollywood studio 10 times over yeah they 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 just do i mean they they make a hundred billion dollars a year in profit Hollywood studios only make about ten to twelve billion dollars total between yeah. all of them I, I remember when it was a big deal Disney's when Hollywood done seven broke, when, yeah yeah that's it all by itself yeah 
So yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. There will but be contraction. Let's there will be. I'm I'm just surprised that, uh, frankly, that Amazon hasn't gone on a spending spree the way the others have. And the only reason, I guess, is according to analysts, analysts. There's a reason why A-N-A-L is the first part of analyst. Uh, so the only reason that, uh, that, that, uh, that they haven't is because they don't want to drag the stock price down. Yeah. Because if the movie division becomes a huge you know, a boondoggle very quickly, then it could drag the other stock price down. And, they want, and in order to fund the movies, they need the overall stock price to be high. So it's a balancing act, right? Yeah. Anyway, all right. Well, we are going to get into it. We're going to start off. I got a bunch of anime here, some great new anime, including a bunch of stuff from uh, Funimation that warrants attention. They uh, Attack on Titan is a fantastic science fiction mecha, uh, mecha series. It is uh, again in the tradition of uh, of Space Cruiser Yamato, Star Blazers, and all the rest of the fun, you know, space going Star Wars ish uh, sagas that always show up in anime. And uh, Attack on Titan is is really one of the very best. They know it's one of the best. It's one of the most popular. And uh, they've got Attack on Titan Season 3 Part 1, just Part 1, and it's the craziest box set. It's absolutely beautiful. Uh, they've got a 24-page digibook with fantastic, beautiful artwork and, and comics from the uh, original Japanese release. And it's just, it's a... It's really, really beautiful. Tons of extras uh, and special features on it. It's really, really beautiful. If you don't know the story, if you're just if you're entering it season three, I'm not going to explain it to you. This is an epic space opera, the likes of which uh, doesn't exist anywhere else uh, uh, in anime or outside of anime. Go and catch up with Attack on Titan season one. It is really, really great. It is classic Joseph Campbell stuff. It rivals Star yeah. Wars. Yeah. It rivals. Space Cruiser Yamato, yeah. frankly. Yeah. Uh, it is really, really good. And uh, Season 3, Part 1 is absolutely terrific. Uh, we also have uh, another installment of Free. Dive, that's Free! Exclamation point. Dive to the Future, Season 3. Uh, that, of course, is, uh, you know, it, it's, it's guys who swim. And uh, it's, it's a kind of a, a teen drama centered around uh, a swim team. And the guys are all in college now, and you know, trying to look at their their future lives. It's uh, it's fine. It's got a following. It, it, the the world of free has been very popular with a lot of kids, especially American kids. I'm not totally clear on why, but it, it, it's there. <laughs> and as long as we're on the sports thing, uh, they also have the complete series of All Out! Exclamation point! Exclamation point! That means it's cooler than free because it's got two exclamation points and it's all in caps. Uh, all Out is uh, is all about uh, rugby. It, but it's more basically the same kind of thing as free. It's just uh, you know guys playing rugby, and uh, and all the drama that goes with that. Uh, and as if that's not enough, we also have Hanebado exclamation point Hanebado. <laughs> that is about badminton. What's with oh. all the sports stuff, right? Yeah. It's a thing. It's a thing in it's, Japan. It's an extremely popular sport, badminton. They take it as seriously as we do tennis. But, it? you know, swimming, rugby, badminton, yeah. anyway, that's the thing in anime these days is like, you know, they know that the kids are playing sports in school, so they, uh, that's what they go for. Anyway, uh, the complete series of Hanebado, which only has one exclamation point, and uh, it is effectively the same kind of thing, except we're talking about girls now. So the others are all boys, boys playing badminton, boys swimming. Now it's girl, uh, boys, sorry, boys playing rugby, boys swimming. Now it's girls playing badminton. And it's, uh, it's really, it's actually quite good. I think I, I think I probably appreciate it more than the others. 
Uh, and then we've got uh, just a few others from Funimation. The complete uncut Hinamatsuri series. Hinamatsuri. These are all on Blu-ray, by the way. Uh, except for Free, which is a Blu-ray DVD combo set, and uh, Attack on Titan, which is a Blu-ray DVD combo. Everything else is just Blu-ray. And uh, Hiramatsure is about a girl who is she's psychic. She's well, no more than psychic. She's uh, she's got she's telekinetic, and um, she 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 uh, gosh, it it's. It, 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 she, oh boy, how to even go into this? So she's like a she's. I don't want to call her a mascot or a pet, but because she's not, she's a human being. But um, she winds up kind of being a burden to this uh, this yakuza. Who? Oh, how do I even put this? What What's a better analogy here? It's not Lilo and Stitch. It's not E. T. Mm. It's uh, what was the Takeshi Kitano movie? Uh, Kik- Kikajuru. 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 Kik- was that the one where he's the he's the he's kind of a mobster and he's got that yeah. little boy he's towing around? Yeah. It's like that. Yeah. Except in anime, and she's psychic. Yeah. And she, and she can move things with her mind. That's what it is. <laughs> So yeah, he, you, you got a yakuza who's got to basically take care of this uh, this freakish little girl, uh, and it's not quite as sentimental as I think it wants to be, but it's all right, it's fine, and I guess it has a bit of a following. Island of the complete series. Uh, this takes place on the island of Urashima, where, um, and I don't even know if that's a real island or not, but the uh, there's a guy that washes ashore and says, I'm from the future. Yeah. And, uh, it's, he's, and he doesn't say, you know, um, uh, look out for the Terminator. The uh, there's a there's a whole um, there's a whole drama that connects to the island and the culture on the island, the people who live on the island, and uh, there is a you know there are some all really interesting existential questions that float around. It's also very very beautifully animated, very sensitively drawn. Island, the complete series, really a very mature anime, and uh, rewrited or rewrite D or however you pronounce it, uh, Derrida who leaps through time, the complete series. Uh, anyway, this is, uh, kind of, um, sort of mystical, uh, sci-fi fantasy. Um, it's, uh, there, there is kind of a Terminator thing going on here that deals with a machine war in the future and somebody with a messianic calling who wakes up in the future and has to, has to, uh, has to, you know, fulfill their destiny the usual deal but really interesting artwork great production design and uh worth checking out uh that's spelled r-e-r-i-d-e-d pronounce it however you want it's you know the 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 first two letters are capped and so is the last and uh derrida who leaps through time just think just know that it's about derrida who leaps through time Ah. Uh, a few other anime titles here that are not from funimation we have uh, Sakura Wars, the complete series. This is uh, this is a little bit of a weird thing. This is from Section Twenty Three and their Sentai Library. What is unusual is this is all this is twenty five episodes on two discs in standard definition, but it's a Blu Ray. So be fairly warned. They make they make this very clear. This is it's a Blu Ray. It will play in a Blu Ray player. You will put it in a Blu-ray player. You will get Blu-ray resolution. You will get HD resolution, but it's still standard definition. Standard definition on a high-def 
disc. It's a very strange thing. I, I'm not anyway. It doesn't look bad. Most discs, the most players these days are up converters, and uh, Sakura Wars is a is a you know it, it it's a little bit dated now, um, but uh, and that's why it, you know. But it, it's it's all right. You know, it all starts in 1918, and uh, it begins with a, a demon attack on Tokyo, and uh, you go from the from a kaiju story into a bit of a mecha story. Uh, with these, you know, robots and and androids, and uh, it, it it's it it's a it's a good show. It's a little dated, but it still it still resonates. Also from Sente on Blu-ray, Devil's Line, the complete collection. Uh, Devil's Line is a is a really cool reconceptualization reconceptualization of the vampire saga. And uh, these are about vampires that you just can't kill. Everything, that, all the all the lore has been rewritten, and it's a complete. Uh, com- now vampires are just roaming Tokyo, and it's a real problem. Um, it always is. It always is, yeah, right? Yeah. Devil's Line is uh, is actually really very interesting. I'm, it's it's very smart. I could see them doing this as a live action. I could see somebody mm-hmm. getting live action. Mm-hmm. It's that you know because vampires are always more interesting live action. Um, another one from Sente. We got a couple more from Sente, and then uh, and then one from. Uh, the, the the really golden one from uh, um, uh, G Kids. Last two from Sente uh, is uh, Sorcer- Sorceress Stabber Orphan, spelled O R P H E N. That's two seasons, forty seven episodes of a um, a pretty decent uh, mystical telling that felt very. Uh, Dark Crystal to me. Dark Crystal drops at the end of the month too, doesn't it? Oh on, yeah, on it Amazon yeah. or whatever, whoever's doing it. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to that. I, I want to see what they do with that. Hope it's not too CGI. Hope we kept the puppetry. Anyway, this feels this feels very Dark Crystal-ish, only with human characters. But uh, the writing's good. It's got a little bit of comedy in it. That's a, a little bit off-putting. Goes a little bit uh, haywire. But otherwise, Sorceress Stabber Orphan is is to be recommended. And then the last one from uh, Sente here is Waiting in the Summer, the complete collection, which also has an English dub version on it. Uh, this is, uh, you know, a, a little bit inside baseball. It's all about uh, a bunch of kids, and they're, you know, hanging out over, over the holidays and just uh, kind of doing a, a general teen thing that we, we get with uh, these kinds of movies, except this is anime. Uh, kids over the summer. It's uh, it's it's a little bit melodramatic. It's a little bit uh, a little soapy, but it's okay. Uh, the best of all of these, however, is yet another wonderful series release from G Kids and Shout Factory. It is the complete series of Ronja, the Robber's Daughter, which is directed by Goro Miyazaki. Mm. This has English audio on it as well. I recommend that you not listen to the English audio. The voice acting is very very good, but. Uh, the uh, um, it, the Japanese voices are better, and the uh, the animation is beautiful as you would expect from anything Studio uh, Ghibli. Uh, and Goro Miyazaki is certainly uh, keeping the Miyazaki clan in uh, in in good. It is just really really wonderful. This is based on a novel by Astrid Lindgren. The we talked about being Astrid a few yeah. weeks ago, mm-hmm. the creator of Pippi Longstocking. So this is actually anime based on a Lindgren novel. Um, about this this girl and who is born into a uh, a kind of a clan of thieves, mm. and uh, as she grows up, it becomes a little bit of a brave story, like Pixar's Brave, oh, right? It. You know her, except she's not royal; 
she's like royal banditry, right? And um, it's it really it, it goes into a really really wonderful pastoral direction too, and it's great. The combination of Lindgren storytelling and Japanese animation is really a, a, a very nice fusion. So uh, very very smart. Ronja, the robber's daughter, the complete series, twenty five episodes or twenty six episodes, sorry. And uh, the uh, the English narration is by Gillian Anderson. Oh wow! Isn't that lovely? So there we go. That's our anime this week. Uh, Want to do a couple new movies? Yeah, let's do new movies. We got um, great ones this week. Well, yeah, including Rocket Man, Taron Egerton as Elton John. Taron uh, doing fantastic work in this film. Yes, a film amazing. That I He's going to win an Oscar. Uh, you know, I'm I'm wondering I'm wondering if folks are going to remember this film by, by by the time that part of the year rolls around. I'll tell you why they'll remember it because Paramount has basically bet their entire future on this movie. I know it sounds weird. It's mm. not a franchise, but here's how I know that. And I posted a picture of this on on uh, Digigods um, because they sent the swag of all swag with this. <laughs> I get this big box from Paramount. I'm like, oh, I don't. There are no box sets coming out from mm. Paramount. What is this? Usually, the size of the box dictates what's in it, right? I open it up, and there is the 4K of Rocket Man. Yeah. Plus. Rocket Man Elton John sunglasses mm-hmm. plus a shiny silver Rocket Man uh, jacket. <laughs> oh, get out. No. Like full size? Full size. Full on jacket. Like <gasps> full on jacket plus a, um, a, a karaoke microphone deal. <laughs> <laughs> like a speaker and a microphone to do karaoke. That is that, sick. It's all in, in this big box. And I'm like, okay, you know what? I, I like the movie. I'm, you're not going to convince me to like it more yeah. with all this swag, but I'm impressed. I'm going to remember now. I'm impressed. I'm going to remember now. They're going to they're gonna do a number on the awards campaign. So I put on the, I put, I put on the jacket <laughs> and I put on the sunglasses. And uh, my daughter was watching some Disney movie. And I walk in and she looks at me. And she gives me this long stare for about 16 seconds. <laughs> and then she says, why do you look weird? <laughs> so there it is. Yeah, it's called the rock and roll, baby. Yeah. Uh, it, it, look, uh, the, 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 this, is fan, this is a fantastic DVD. All kinds of stuff uh, on it in terms of special features. Uh, extended musical sequences, deleted scenes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's gorgeous. I, I rather enjoyed this movie. I love this movie. Uh, Dexter Fletcher's, you know, they, of course, they brought in Dexter to finish yeah. Bohemian after that whole yeah. situation. So plainly, yeah. they're you know looking yeah. to, looking for another one of those. Uh, and and this was a great performance by uh, Jamie Bell is really good in this movie too. Oh, Jamie Bell is fantastic as uh, as, uh, Bernie. as Bernie playing Bernie. Look, look. Uh, here's the thing about Rocket Man. It is not Bohemian Rhapsody because no. it really does have staged musical numbers like Broadway. Time Type musical numbers, which are sort of fantasy elements in yeah. it. You're, you're it's a Mike, musical. It's a musical. It's a straight-up musical. Um, a friend of mine, Michael J., I'm going to put his name right out there, very successful songwriter, had a song in Top Gun, and he works with a lot of top artists to, to this day. He's been around, you know, he's had a great career for 30, 40 years. Um, Michael J. hates this movie. What? <laughs> what is he, he, hates, he hates it. Because he... We had a, we had a thing after this. He's like, "How could you like it?" I said, "Because it's Elton John, and the yeah. songs are great." He said, "He didn't sing Crocodile Rock when he was at when he when he did the, the, the big performance at the uh, oh, uh, at the at the, the on Sunset Strip, right? The, the, like, the Troubadour at the Troubadour. He yeah. goes, he did he didn't sing Crocodile Rock. He couldn't have because the song wasn't written for like another. And he goes into the timeline, right? It's like <laughs> yeah. all the wrong songs. And he goes and Bernie and and he knows this stuff. He knows yeah. the story inside out. And so all the details that are wrong drove him crazy. Drove him crazy. 
I, okay, look, I understand nuts. that. But we, so. this is the reason why Rocket Man works for me. As, it, it, not that Bohemian Rhapsody and, and, and many of the other ones that we've seen, uh, uh, Val Kilman, that Doors movie, uh, you know, they're, they're, over the yeah. years, over the years, right? Here's, yeah. here's the thing that's different about Rocket Man. Elton makes it. Yeah. He didn't die when he was 27. You watch this movie and you don't have yeah. a knot in your stomach That's for, it. For, for an hour and a half yeah. waiting for the big horrible when the AIDS yeah. got him and when the alcohol got him and when yeah. the shooting up got him. No, nothing gets out. He's over there. He's fine. He's fine. So you watch this movie he's happy. knowing that everything turns out great. He has he's contributed. Happy. And he's he, rich. He, he puts he's a successful. lie to all of that rock and roll crap. I mean, he's all got the, the Pearl Jam guy. I mean, go through yeah. the litany of all the guys who've yeah. been dead. And the no. Our guys, who we came up with through, yeah. you know, start with Kurt Cole. Jimmy, Jimmy Hendrix. Jimmy, all guys. Uh, Mama Cass. All that bullshit. He was yeah. supposed to lie to us. Like, that's yeah. a bunch of bullshit. Yeah. No. You could you yeah. could be a rock and roll star, live to be an old queen, yeah, uh, uh, help uh, uh, cure AIDS, and 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 and, 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 and win win Tonys and win Oscars and have a family yeah. and the whole nine yards. Oh no, yeah, yeah. So Elton puts to light all that foolishness, yeah. and uh, and that's what I love about it. I watched that movie with no knot in my stomach, sir. Thank you, Elton. Uh, for doing yep. that, uh, Killers Anonymous. Killers Anonymous is a uh, Gary Oldman, Jessica Alban, uh, Alba film uh, uh, about these guys, uh, the, this group of killers who are in this thing like Alcoholics Anonymous or something yep. like that. And then it turns out somebody tries to kill the sinner, uh, and you know one of them probably tried yep. to do it, and it's going to mess up the whole their whole little thing. It's kind of John uh, yeah. Wicky in that way with the other sure. guy kind of thing. You know what? Don't work. <laughs> uh, don't work at all. Deleted scenes, alternate ending, and, I, and you know what? They should have came up with four or five alternate endings and picked a different one because the one that's actually in the movie sucks. Uh, <laughs> the last black man in San Francisco, Joe Talbert. Really good. This is just such a beautiful, beautiful movie. Uh, a poetic film uh, that really, for young man's directorial debut. Been making shorts yeah. for a whole bunch of him and him, him and this group for yeah. a long time. Basically, it's about the gentrification. Uh, the gentrification of San Francisco and what it does to this one particular family, this one particular man whose house was lost sometime in the 90s, and he keeps returning to this house that he remembers being in as a child with yeah. his parents when his family was intact, and his, the drugs hit the city. Uh, and his mother and his father they, they got caught up, and then the house was lost. Yeah, uh, It's beautiful. What this movie also knows, though, is that this gentrification thing is interesting in the way that it works. When he goes back to his home, there's this white family living in his home, and they are being gentrified yeah. out of yeah. their home, his yeah. home. And it's like it doesn't care. It doesn't care. It's just, it's just such a beautiful, beautiful Here, here's movie. What, here's, what I, here's what I love about this movie. It does, it does something that I don't normally expect young filmmakers to do, and it, it understands that if you, if, you want, if you want to make a statement about something, you don't have to make a statement. Mm -mm. You just need to tell a human story. And the statement will ride on that story if the story is well told, if the characters yeah. are true. Yeah. Too, many, too often people do the other thing. They're like, I'm going to make a movie that's going to send this message. And then you populate it with these two-dimensional cardboard characters yeah. that you're just moving around a chessboard, and nobody winds up caring yeah, because um, you have to care first. The caring is your, is, channels you into whatever the message is that you're telling. And he says, I don't need to make a statement about gentrification and all this. I'm no, just going to tell a true story about this about this, this, is this, what, this, this guy. This, this is what this looks like. Yeah, it's uh, beautiful. And, and there's nothing – there's nobody there to make any judgments of or about. There's that, no, there are no bad guys or evil people. Yeah, yeah, I mean, even Max Greenfield's – he's just – you know, it's a lovely, lovely, beautiful movie. Last Black Man in San Francisco. The Hustle. Man, this wanted so bad to be that – what was that Michael Caine movie? Uh, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels? Yeah, yeah. You know, I saw the yeah. female Dirty Rotten yeah. Scoundrels. 
uh, with Rebel Wilson no. and Anne Hathaway. No. You know, uh, no. It, no. You, you know what's, uh, why this doesn't work? It's because at this point, uh, I'm going to point at Rebel Wilson, too. Yeah. Uh, that routine you've been doing, that's not funny anymore. It's old. That's old. It's old. A sassy, big, fat girl, girl is not, that's not funny anymore. And I'm going to say something else. Uh, I know people have dumped on cats a lot already, but let's go there. Uh, she's <laughs> she's going to do that in cats yeah. as well. Except with digital fur. Yeah. And it ain't going to work. It ain't going to work at all. No. Not going to work. And and whatever made Anne Hathaway think she could uh, do Uh, jokes like that, I have no idea what it is. You going to pop over to some? Let me me hit some uh, classic movies here. We got uh, Twilight Time, Kino, and Juno. Some stuff from Juno and uh, a couple of things from Mill Creek, too. So uh, a couple from Twilight Time this month. Elvis Presley in uh, Wild in the Country which is not your typical Elvis Presley movie because it's uh, directed by Philip Dunn, who's a real director, and because it is um, a screenplay by Clifford Odets. Yeah. yeah. Great playwright. Clifford Odets wrote the screenplay, and a beautiful screenplay it is. It's based not on Odets' original material, though. It's based on a novel by uh, J.R. Salamanca, and uh, it's a really, really good movie. It's it's really, really sharp. Uh, Made in 1961, it's very kind of Douglas Sirkish uh, in terms of its uh, its melodrama and the way that it, it spins this particular story. But uh, you know, uh, Elvis is fantastic. He plays this uh, you know this kid from the Shenandoah Valley who's um, who's who's trying to you know uh, get a better life. Hope Lang, who would later show up in the in uh, this the mom and Ghost and Mrs. Muir on TV, when, when is people- the psychiatrist who's trying to help him. It's um, when people talk about Elvis and Elvis movies, and they start thinking about all those, you know, perfectly fun but goofy movies. Yeah, I always have to remind them of that movie and the movie that he made the year before, Flaming Star. Right. Uh, uh, right. Which, which were these two dead serious movies in he's which tr- Elvis is very he's good. Really good. He's uh, really good. You know, and, it, and then he decides to do the other thing, to yeah, go the other way. Because but, you he know, could. He, yeah, he could have been, been Steve McQueen, though. But a lot of great performances in here. Rayford Johnson's in here, John Ireland, Tuesday Weld. It's a really wonderful, wonderful cast. And she'd uh, be fantastic cinemascope photography. It's really beautiful. And of course, as with most Twilight Time movies, which you get at twilighttimemovies.com, twilighttimemovies.com has nice. Isolated score track. Uh, you also have that isolated music track uh, for the President's Lady, which uh, it also includes a vintage radio show and an original trailer. Uh, this is a, uh, a Henry Levin directed film from uh, 1953, which has one of the most unusual Charlton Heston performances I have ever seen. I had forgotten how unusual it was. Uh, this is this is a it, this, apparently this is also a a historically factual thing, so uh, this is all about um, President Andrew Jackson. Mm-hmm. This is allegedly an episode from the life of the President Andrew Jackson, yeah, and a, his uh, his relationship with a woman known by the name of Rachel Donaldson, mm-hmm. who was married at mm-hmm. the time. And apparently it was a thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, if you don't know this story, you might want to watch the movie. I'm surprised this hasn't been remade. Um, but it, it's, it's... It's tough to remake it because uh, Andrew, Jackson was just, Andrew Jackson was just terrible. Uh, a, 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 an awful man. And, and just an awful person. So but in an awful period in time, an awful too. Period in time, but he's not a heroic figure at all. Yeah, so this gets uh, tries to make him a little heroic and romantic. Yeah. Uh, look, 
you're watching this basically for Charlton Heston. That's yeah. why you're watching this. Uh, Charlton Heston just does the thing that he does, which is he just makes you he makes you swoon. Whether you're whether you're straight, gay, I don't care. Whether you're <laughs> man or a woman, you swoon for Chuck. You just do. I don't care if you the whole NRA thing. You can hate him for that. I don't care. But in in the movies, he makes you swoon. Yeah. Look, first of all, we we get Chuck all wrong. In the first, Chuck marched with Martin Luther King for God's sake. Yeah. So you know, and yeah. and the NRA thing was like 1980. Yeah. The NRA. Even I was a that. member of the NRA in 1980. <laughs> all right. I was in the Air Force in 1980. Yeah. I was a member of the NRA. So so you know, it, but people are goofy. Great Alfred Newman music yeah, on this, Alfred by the Newman. way. Great Alfred Newman music. Uh, Kino's thrown a bunch of great stuff at us this month, too. Uh, the first off is uh, Day of the Outlaw, which is just really wonderful, fantastic trash. Uh, this is an Andre de Toth-directed movie from 1959. It was, an, it was a UA film at the time. And it wound up in the MGM library, which now winds up uh, being licensed by 20th to Kino Lorber. That's how this thing came. Uh, but this is just really great, like, exploitation uh, Western stuff. It's um, it's like I spit on your grave Western yeah. style, right? The uh, it, it's, it's, you know, women in bustiers and men who abuse women and women who need to get revenge on the men and the banditos. And it's just the Wild West is just a, a nasty sexual roughie as much as they could do in 1959, <laughs> as much as they could get away with. Uh, so anyway, it's a wonderful cast here. Robert Ryan, Burl Ives, uh, Tina Louise shows up in here as well. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's a really fun, just trashy Western Lysha Cook Jr. And, uh, you know, I'm sure Tarantino loves this. So audio, audio commentary by, uh, Jeremy Arnold is also a lot of fun. The American Film Theater line continues to release its uh, its titles individually. These were originally released in boxed sets by Kino uh, years ago and uh, on DVD, and they're releasing them individually now on Blu-ray, which is a little bit annoying, but they continue to be out there. This was um, the uh, the the project of producer Ely Landau back in the 1970s when he decided to get to, to do movies based on a series of very, very famous plays. Mm-hmm. It's really all over the map, it's, and it's very, very diverse, and, and, and there are a lot of interesting things here. The two being released this week are In Celebration and Butley. Um, Butley is by, uh, based on the play by Simon Gray. It stars Alan Bates. And uh, this is one of the, you know, this is very uh, distinguished British... Uh, boarding school um, stuff, Browning version stuff, right? Mm-hmm, it's kind of mm-hmm. in that same vein. And then uh, In Celebration also stars Alan Bates uh, in a, an adaptation of a David Story play. This one is much more interesting because two reasons. Number one, directed by Lindsay Anderson, mm-hmm. one of the angry young men who did If and many other great films and who really directs the hell out of this in a beautiful way. It's it's just top-notch Lindsay Anderson directing from 1975. But also because it co-stars with Alan Bates a young Brian Cox. Oh! And we're so accustomed to Brian Cox being yeah, the yeah, heavy, yeah. the big, uh, you know, the, that bear of a guy that he's been playing for the last 20 or 30 years. Um, ever since Manhunter. Manhunter, yeah. Uh, but, you know, Brian Cox, man, in 75, he still had it. Yeah. He's like an, a young Anthony Hopkins, too. You know, yeah. he's just, he's been killing it for years. Yeah, yeah, we forget. We, we forget. forget. Yeah. So, anyway, it's uh, really, really, I'll tell you, In Celebration is terrific. But both of them, you can't go wrong. It's just good Alan Bates acting. Uh, Simon Gray's Butley 
and uh, in celebration. Oh, and and uh, Butley should point out, directed by Harold Pinter, yeah. who great writer, not a great not director. Not a great director. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, workmanlike. Uh, one more here, and then I'll turn it back over to you. Buster Keaton Collection Volume Three from Cohen. Uh, they are competing with Kino. Kino released all the original Buster Keaton stuff in their library, the Blackhawk Films Collection, onto Blu-ray years ago. And now Kino, uh, sorry, Cohen is is competing with Kino by releasing all of their Buster Keaton stuff that they inherited uh, when they when they bought some some uh, some other uh, major collections, including the Rohauer Collection, which in, which has most of the same stuff. Um, but in better prints and better source material, too, in, in some cases. So here we've got Buster Keaton Volume 3, Seven Chances, and Battling Butler, new restorations and new scores. So double up on the Kino if you can. Uh, it's, it's just as fun to have several versions of this. These are uh, two classic Buster Keaton silence from 1925 and 26. And Battling Butler, uh, I, I think, is just a, a, such an underrated film. Seven Chances is the one that a lot of people point to. It has some of Buster Keaton's best stunts in it. But, uh, you know, because it's all, it's all about uh, um, trying to get married by the deadline so we can inherit $7 million. You know, yeah. that's, the, that's the gimmick in it. It's, uh, it, it, it's, it's pretty great. But uh, Battling Butler, you know, has, uh, is, is a real, was a real favorite of Buster Keaton's. It's very, very sentimental. It's based on a play. It's a mistaken identity story that is done so beautifully and so wonderfully. And uh, it ends up with, a, uh, with, a, with a, a, a boxing match in Madison Square Garden. It's just beautiful. So fantastic transfer here from Cohen from Collection of Seven Chances in Battling Butler, the Buster Keaton Collection, Volume 3. Adia. Knock out a couple yeah, of docs. Hit them. Uh, including this one, Anti-Nowhere anti League. We are the league. This is a documentary about the uh, British, uh, the seminal British punk band. Uh, uh, we are the league. Anti-Nowhere League is the name of the, uh, Anti-Nowhere League is the name of the band. We are the league is the name of the album. Camp, they formed in 19, 1979. Yep. Uh, 40 years ago. I graduated from high school in 1949. Uh, at 19, uh, in 1979. I wish we got 1940. Yeah. That'd be terrible. Uh, 19, <laughs> 1979. And I was, I was a bit of a punker myself. These guys were right up there with the Sex Pistols, Sid Vicious, all of those guys who were doing the damn thing uh, back in the day. This is a really, really neat film that sort of redocuments all of that. Uh, it's packed full of never-before-seen footage, including from their very first show at the Lyceum in London. Uh, it has footage from uh, Stuart Copeland's uh, uh, great punk film, uh, So What?, uh, and it, it, uh, just you know, just all kinds of neat stuff. So if you're a lover of punk, this is something you really just have to add to your collection, and it's, it's just good stuff all the way around. You'll probably want to go ahead and put it with uh, from Liverpool to Hamburg, the Beatles, uh, made on Merseyside. Yeah, uh, this is just another you know young Beatles. I Beatles are thanks to yesterday, the Beatles are hot again. Oh yeah, and fiftieth anniversary of uh, of Abbey Road, right? Yeah. It's all this stuff. It's yeah, yeah Ringo was out there on tour. Uh, yeah, so you know so that whole thing is going on. So it's really just a just a lovely. A lovely film that with lots of fantastic footage from back in the day of the Beatles. Um, the this documentary, Be Natural. I have been teaching about this filmmaker, Alice Guy Blaché. So this yeah. is a documentary about the filmmaker Alice Guy Blaché. Documentary. And no, you've never heard of her. Um, Alice Guy was uh, was was Alice Guy was in the room when the Lumiere brothers first used their projector to screen. Footage of that train arriving uh, at train La Ciota. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I've, uh, been, I've, I've, I've lived near La Ciota. It's, I know it, it well. that, that thing, and it was it was the big thing. She was in the room. She was she was eighteen years old. Um, uh, Alice Guy uh, is probably the very first filmmaker 
period. Not first female filmmaker, but mm-hmm. she's probably the very first filmmaker because she was narrative. The, narrative. She was the first filmmaker yeah. that understood that we can tell stories with this. We don't just have to shoot stuff happening. Yeah. Uh, all of which was intriguing and fascinating at that time. Uh, but she realized, no, I can tell stories. There are techniques of cinema, the close-up. Yeah. Alice Guy invented the close-up. She did. She was the one and, who... And people used to say that it was the great train robbery uh, that was the first close-up. Yeah, it was no. not. No, 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 See? no. Oh, yeah. in, 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 in narrative, narrative storytelling, Alice Guy came to America, went on to start a uh, film studio in New Jersey, in Fort Lee, New Jersey, Solax Studios. Yeah. She made thousands upon thousands of films. Alice Guy was, probably one, was likely one of the first people to make sound film films a full decade. Uh, before when we think of sound, the talkies coming in. Alice Guy was already making sound films. Alice Guy was doing hand-painted colored films a decade before anybody else was thinking about yep. these things. So anyway, uh, this is just a fantastic film, Be Natural, the untold story of Alice Guy Blaschet, narrated by Jodie Foster. I think we're going to be talking to... Well, uh, yes, Pamela Green is, is, is due to be our guest on this podcast. Yeah, the uh, director, producer. At the, at the end of this show. So, uh, yes, she's not here yet, so... I don't. I just want to make sure she's able to find her way to the studio. But yes, that is uh, that is due to be our uh, our big surprise at the end of the show. And we have a lovely documentary. I am Patrick Swayze. I always I always adored Patrick Swayze. Uh, I did too. Uh, yeah, is, yeah. It makes me so sad because yeah. he, he would be still with us, and he would be doing really interesting work as yeah, an actor. As an actor, probably on some really great aging, series, aging into some really interesting parts, and it's just so sad. Uh, but his his career, uh, he left uh, several extraordinary extraordinary performances. Yeah. Not not Oscar. Kind Kind of caliber performances, but the sort of performances that ingrain themselves into your psyche. Yeah, uh, that's the kind of actor Patrick Swayze was a, a, a kind and gentle soul. And this is a wonderful film that honors him from PBS Nova. Uh, the planets uh, is just a fantastic documentary that explores all of the planets in our solar system one by one. It's a really, really good film, uh, particularly on the 50th anniversary of the Apollo moon missions and yeah. our sort of uh, launching they just keep out the more space. so much space stuff. Yeah, so you much great can't space go wrong stuff. With any of that? Fantastic. Uh, and I got another interesting space thing momentarily, but uh, the Juno Selects line of classic movies comes out on DVD uh, through MVD Music Video Distributors, MVD Visual, and they've got three this week that are just I mean they're really they're really cool um, independent films from bygone eras, usually the 1950s. And uh, you would otherwise probably never have known these movies existed, never have cared, but Juno finds them like a gem and puts them out, and it is just absolutely wonderful that they do. Uh, I had never seen any of these. had never seen any of these, so it's such a great discovery. Uh, Conflict of Wings is the first one from 1954. And this is is just such an unusual melodrama that is about a, a village where the government wants to um, convert a, a bird sanctuary nearby into a firing range. And so now you get this kind of uh, save-the-tiger-type battle between the people in the town and the, uh, and the government. Mm. And uh, it's based on a novel, which I had never heard of either. And it's just, it's just really good, solid melodrama. It's really good, directed by a guy named John Eldridge, I'm unfamiliar with. Uh, and it's uh, it, it's it's a it's just a really really good solid film originally made by Beaconsfield's Film Studios. It's just terrific. Um, another one, The Holy Terrors in Child's Play. Uh, this is they 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 call this the first atomic powered comedy. Um, this was also uh, made by many of the same people, uh, but this was directed by a woman in 1954, which is relatively unheard of. 
to be honest. Uh, just a fantastic, and you know, a British film in 1954 directed by a woman named Margaret Thompson, which I thought was, you know, wow, mm-hmm. there we go. Uh, absolutely outstanding. And um, she apparently had a, a much longer, I mean, we're talking about Alice Guy Blachet, and apparently, yeah. apparently Margaret Thompson had something of a moment in the 1950s. So it, 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 that that's really interesting coming yeah. on the heels of, uh, of Alice there. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, this has a lot of people who would go on to do much bigger things uh, in, in other things. You're going to, you know, see people that you recognize from British television in, in, in subsequent years. And what's the, the real thing here, this is basically about a bunch of kids. The story is very, very simple and very cute. It's kind of Bugsy Maloneish. It's about a bunch of kids who um, come into, the, uh, into possession of an atomic chemistry set, and uh, they are able to do things you would never imagine kids should be able to do yeah. with an atomic set, but they do kid things with it. It's actually really, really, really sweet, very cleverly written. It's, uh, it's beautiful. And here's the thing. Uh, there's an actor in here by the name of Peter Salas, much younger man at the time in the mm-hmm. 1950s, but he only recently passed away. And for while he was alive, in the last years of his life, he was the voice of Wallace in Wallace and Gromit. Oh, and that's sweet. Fantastic, fantastic. And then the last one uh, is Double Cross. All is one word. Double Cross. Uh, this was made in 1951, and it is a, uh, a rather remarkable noir, to be honest. It's uh, it all takes place in uh, in Cornwall, and uh, it's got some tremendous performances in it. And uh, it, it, it does things that American noirs just are not, I, I mean, wouldn't even be doing in, in the 1950s. You yeah. migrated to a different kind of noir, which is sort of a paranoid post-nuclear Cold War noir, mm-hmm. which isn't the same as the stuff they were doing in the 30s and 40s. So uh, this is a very interesting noir for the 50s, really, really taking a lot of chances, directed by Anthony Squire, also Beaconsfield Film Studios. And... Um, very, very interesting. Great performance by Donald Houston, no, who may, may have seen him in The Longest Day. No relationship to any of the Houstons in the U.S. He spells it H-O-U-S-T-O-N, which means he probably pronounces it Houston, mm-hmm. like the British often would. But, um, yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a great thing here with, you know, secret documents and, uh, and smuggling. And it's, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. It feels almost like an early Hitchcock film, too. And then real quickly, uh, we got a couple of compilation things here uh, from Mill Creek. Shark bait, six killer shark films, plus a seventh bite to sink your teeth into. These are all really very silly movies, especially Zombie Shark from 2014. Didn't even know that was made. Uh, Swamp Shark, Santa Jaws, Ozark Sharks, <laughs> Mississippi River Sharks, Ghost Shark. This is insane. Uh, the, the 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 legacy that Jaws has wrought, and every single one of these has been made within the last five years, mm. except for one. Every single one of them, it's ridiculous. <laughs> um, but if you can't get enough bad shark movies, you're going to love it. And then uh, to go with that, it hits the fan for apocalyptic disaster movies. Uh, these are also silly: Chrome Angels, Ghouls, Judgment Day, and Tornado Warning. Uh, these have all also been made just within the past ten years, and um, they're just they're just like low budget uh, CGI laden uh, attempts to do modern day disaster movies in the in the Erwin uh, Allen mold. Yeah, big yeah. deal. Yeah, but they have no irony in them. There's no irony, yeah, but it is. It's great. You know, if you want a bunch of trash campy. to throw yeah. on in the background, it's campy. That's yeah, it's it. Campy. It's camp fun. A little irony would be nice. Yeah, so. uh, a little bit of TV. Yeah, from Acorn. This original series uh, from out of uh, Denmark and New Zealand. I really, really dug this. It's called Straightforward. It's about this con woman who uh, a family member of hers is is killed by this gangster. Uh, she decides to take the gangster for a bunch of dough. 
Okay. Uh, things go a little bit sideways. She has to she has to take it on the hill and toe. Goes to New Zealand, and it's all about eight episodes, one season. But this is as tightly and sharply written, performed, acted, nice. and shot. Plus, it's in New Zealand, so it's, it's beautiful. You know, everything as anything you've as any American noir sort of television. And what I like about it, it's it has intention. This this means to do eight episodes on two discs in this particular case and, right. be, and get out of there. And it is just a steamroller. That's the way I like my television. Yeah. Just a steamroller, man. Yeah. I really just, just, just love the heck out of that. Uh, the 10th season of NCIS Los Angeles, on the other hand, has been dragging on for 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> and they've been doing, hey, look, uh, 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 O'Connell and, uh, and LL Cool J, if you, had, if you had said to me 10 years ago, you know the kid that played Robin <laughs> and that rapper? Uh, you know, you do it and do it and do it. They're going yeah. to be on this TV show, for this cop TV show for 10 years. So weird. I'd have thought, it was, I'd thought you were crazy. Over 45 minutes of special features and other crap. It's just weird to me. It's a fascinating thing. For the longest time in, in like the, uh, the set, mainly in the 70s, 60s and 70s, they tried to make movie stars of a lot of rock stars. Yeah. Remember, you know, like, like, like Mick, Mick, Jagger, Mick made a real yeah, shot at yeah, David yeah. Bowie. Kind yeah, of get, yeah. And Bowie would go on to have an okay career as an actor, yeah. you know, a few things. Mick has done a few things. Everybody else just fell on their faces, but they, they gave up on it. And then suddenly the rappers came around in the 1980s. Mm hmm. And they turned into movie stars. Oh, yeah. Like TV stars. I mean, Will Smith. Uh, Queen Ice Cube. Queen Ice Latifah. Ice T has been on that TV show T for, for 30 years, 25, whatever it's yeah. been. You know, uh, LL Cool J. I mean, they turned into, like, suddenly, that was the, those were the music industry people who, who were able. And if you think about it, it sort of makes sense. If you're a singer, you're a musician. Yeah. If you're a hip hop artist, no, that's all you're a storyteller. That's a storyteller, that's all. That's all. It's that's a, a, it's different, a different, different thing. thing. Yeah, it is the whole thing. Uh, Homeland, a series that I, I always had issues with Homeland. Uh, I, based on an Israeli series. Based on an Israeli yes. series, you know, and, and Claire Danes, and, and it's just what she, I'm like. I'm like that chick needs to be on medication. <laughs> I'm like, are you, not, we're, on, we're, we're, not on assignment. Not on assignment, <laughs> baby. Take your Ritalin. That's what you need. Three discs contains all twelve episodes of the complete seventh season. Yeah. But I'm sorry, I see th I see it like that, man. Yeah, uh, yeah, I hear you. Uh, let me hit a couple of foreign titles here. Uh, four, not a couple. I'm gonna hit four. Uh, some wonderful stuff from Criterion this month. And uh, Ozu is somebody. It's always great when you get an Ozu film from Criterion uh, because they treat it as delicately as he treated his subjects. The flavor of green tea over rice. It's not a perfect Ozu uh, title, yeah, yeah. Because and because when you see that, you realize that is because the, when Ozu gives you a title like "The Flavor of Green Tea Over Rice," what that means is the movie is literally mm -hmm. about the flavor of green tea over rice. That is literally what the movie's about. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. that's also a metaphor for something. Something. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, it's just beautiful. This is uh, 1952. Ozu in his really in his kind of his early prime. Uh, and it is, you know, it is exactly what his movies are. They, it's a, this is a, 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 a portrait of uh, a couple, and um, it's sort of like his version of Bergman's scenes from a marriage. Yeah, is maybe a way to do it. It's, uh, it's a marriage coming apart, and uh, dealing with all of the pressures that are on them from Japanese society and and society generally and the world and. Uh, you know, uh, family in this case, and niece. It's just a, it's a beautiful, beautiful movie. There was a new 4K digital restoration of it, which is the source for this Blu-ray. Uh, the audio is beautiful. 
the Japanese, the mono uh, soundtracks for Japanese films in the 1950s are always so, so wonderful. They're so textured. They really were doing a great job recording at the time. And this also includes uh, a 1937 Ozu feature, What Did the Lady Forget, that, that has similar overtones. And you can see how his style evolved between the 30s and the 50s. And uh, a David Bordwell's uh, video essay. And a new documentary uh, that's all uh, called Ozu and Nada, which is all about his uh, collaboration with his screenwriter Kogo Nada. It's really just a, a lovely, lovely film. And then the big mama this week from Criterion is a box set with all kinds of beautiful custom packaging. They really went to town on this. The Coker Trilogy, K-O-K-E-R, three films by the late Abbas Kiarostami. Uh, Abbas Kiarostami, basically the, the godfather of the Iranian New Wave, uh, just an absolutely brilliant, brilliant filmmaker. And these are three films that I would be willing to wager most people have never seen. There's only one of them that is significantly well-known in his filmography, so it's nice that all three of them are together in one box set. They've all been 2K digitally restored, uh, and uh, the films are from 1987, Where is the Friend's House? From 1992, And Life Goes On, and then 1994 is the film that's uh, been out previously and which a lot of people know uh, probably a little bit more is uh, Through the Olive Trees. Uh, they are all they are all one six 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 aspect ratio, so not just just slightly widescreen, uh, but co composed in just the most magnificent way. And these are these are basically like um, uh, sort of parables about uh, life and human nature. There's not a there's not a a sort of um, a narrative through line that makes this a trilogy. It's a thematic through line, and it's it's poetic as you would expect from Karastami and very deliberate. And uh, none of the films are terribly long. Uh, Through the Olive Trees is the longest one. It's only 100 and some minutes. The others are, are they, they just breeze by. It's beautiful. And there's a wonderful, wonderful commentary on And Life Goes On uh, with the co-authors of the book on Abbas Kiarostami, Jonathan Rosenbaum and Mernaz Said Vafa, which is is perfect an elucidation of his work and why it matters, as you'll ever see. There's also a documentary by Kiarostami called Homework from 1989, which makes it basically four Kiarostami films on, uh, on one box set. And uh, then there's also the 1994 documentary Abbas Kiarostami, Truths and Dreams. Uh, otherwise, there are interviews and conversations on here, and it's just uh, it's, it's superb and wonderful and uh, a fitting tribute to one of the great filmmakers of the 20th century who is sadly no longer with us. Uh, oh, yeah. You know what? I'll hit, I'll hit this out, too. Okay. Um, real quickly, Bertrand Blier's uh, Get Out Your Handkerchiefs with Depardieu, uh, Gerard Depardieu and Patrick DeWare. Um, this is on Blu-ray from Cohen. It is a 40th anniversary uh, restoration. And worth pointing out, this film won the Academy Award for Bertrand Blier in 1978. It is very, very funny. It is very clever. Uh, it's a tiny bit dated just in terms of its style. It's sort of uh, the the open marriage thing that is at the center of this. Uh, it, it feels a little bit, uh, you know, of its moment. But uh, that that said, you're still dealing with Patrick DeWare and the great Gerard Depardieu before he put on 950 pounds <laughs> that he can't seem to get off, doesn't want to get off. But really, it's, uh, it's a great movie. It has a wonderful score by Georges Delarue. It's a beautiful transfer. Uh, and it has a new introduction by Richard Pena. So there you go. You can't can't lose.
Uh, I'll knock off a few of these, uh, if you will. The Vanishing Shadow. This was a set of serials, 12-part serials. It was really, really sort of sharp and, and innovative and actually groundbreaking in a certain sort of way. Uh, uh, basically, uh, the story follows the, uh, a son who's avenging his father's death. And over the course of these 12 serials, he devises several very interesting ways uh, to take care of those who took out his dad, Ooh. including the use of robots and what is believed to be the very first appearance of something called a ray gun, a laser gun, a phaser, as they would later call it on Star Trek, on film, on cinema. So it was very, very innovative, uh, both in the, the way he was devising to take these folks out and uh, the tools that he, that he used to do it. Uh, includes uh, a couple of extras, including the theatrical trailer for the film and some liner notes and other stuff. Uh, serials were a lot of fun back in the day. You go to a movie, they show a little serial with a cliffhanger on it before the feature film would start. Uh, and that's what these were, remastered in 2K from the original 35mm fine grain print. So this actually looks fantastic. The Vanishing Shadow, a vicious little revenge story. Um, Double Danger. Uh, this was a sort of uh, William Palamon, a thin man sort of sty style story with a sort of bon vivant crime writer and his, uh, and his female debutante uh, partner roaming around, living their luxurious lives. They each have their servants and all this kind of stuff. But the twist here is that they're both actually jewel thieves. Uh, and, and, and unbeknownst to all of their uptown friends, it's really it's really a fun, fun uh, sort of idea and movie from the um, uh, Warner Archive collection. Preston Foster and Whitney Bourne uh, in Double Danger, starring Donald Meek uh, and Samuel. Well, directed by Lou Landers. That, uh, that's that's the most important part of that. Damn Yankees, Stanley Dolan um, at work. Uh, this is this is just a, a fun, fun, a fun, fun film. Uh, George Abbott and Stanley Donan adapting the musical play of Dan. Of Dan That's great. It, 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 um, Gwen Verdon. Is, I'm thinking of Gwen now because Gwen, yeah. of course, is the subject Fosse of Fosse Verdon, which we talking about last which week. Which we talked about last week with yeah. Michelle Wilson, with you know Gwen Verdon yeah. and this thing. And I think about Gwen. The more I think about Gwen Verdon, the more you realize that she. Yeah. Bob, but yeah. Yeah. You know, and, it and, was Gwen. And it was to Fosse's credit, to Fosse's credit, uh, when you watch the thinly veiled um, depiction of their marriage or their, their disintegrated marriage in uh, uh, all, all that, that jazz, jazz, you do get a sense that he's not afraid to admit that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. he realizes he's a mess and she's the one that had it going it's on. So they held it together for years. Yeah. So, so, yeah. Anyway, damn Yankees. I uh, got some f other foreign stuff here. I'll go through uh, real quickly. A couple of culty titles from Altered Innocence, which is released, uh, distributed by CAV. CAV. Um, culty foreign titles, but distinguished culty foreign titles. The the Earl Prince is a uh, is a a Polish genre film that uh, is is fairly fairly creepy and fairly arty all at the same time. Uh, it's uh, you know we're not accustomed to Polish films necessarily being. Uh, uh, being mystical horror, uh, supernatural films or whatnot, but this is uh, this is one of this is what that is, and uh, it is it, it's interesting. the The Earl Prince it's based on a on a, a apparently a fairly well known story, but uh, boy, it's uh, it's creepy. Um, the creepier one is Knife Plus Heart, which is a French film by Jan Gonzalez that was in competition at Cannes, believe it or not. It stars Vanessa Paradis, the uh, who was a you know a teen a, a teen sensation once upon a time as a singer and would go on to marry Johnny Depp mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, divorce him at exactly the right time before he lost his mind. The this is such a bizarre story 
I I I I wrecked. I I actually almost had nightmares trying to figure out how to detail the story. Mm-hmm. And then I realized that the uh, the Hollywood Reporter quote that they use as a pull quote on the box mm-hmm. is really the perfect quote. So I'm going to read it to you. If Dario Argento, Brian De Palma, and Kenneth Anger conceived a three-way <laughs> love child while watching, cruising, and listening to a Giorgio Moroder mixtape, the result would be something like French director Jan Gonzalez's Knife Plus Heart. There it is. That's it. it takes place in the 70s. <laughs> yeah. That's the Giorgio Moroder yeah, angle yeah, yeah, to yeah, it. Yeah. But it, this is just... It's like, a, it's, like a, it's like a giallo film that has a little bit of French artiness... And that's where the Kenneth Anger, but yet it's got, you know, it's like it's gory, but it's suspenseful. It's just, it's completely nuts. But Vanessa Paradis is great in it. She's absolutely terrific. Uh, also got three, got a trio here from uh, Indie Picks. And these are all really, uh, really low-budget uh, foreign films, but they're worth checking out, and I'll make mention of them really, really quickly. Uh, you can also see Indie Picks unlimited stuff on uh, Amazon's Prime Video channels. But the uh, the first one is called Damned Summer, which is a Portuguese film by uh, director Pedro Caballera. I'm sure I'm not. Hope I'm not mutilating it. Uh, and uh, you know, this is uh, this is kind of one of those. It's basically a, a wasted youth movie set in Lisbon, in in sort of the the poor part of the uh, of the city. Uh, made for next to no money. Caballero was 21 years old when they made this film. And he's just sort of, uh, you know, shining a light on a very, very troubled part of the uh, of the culture in Lisbon. We don't see often uh, too, too many Portuguese movies outside of Manuel de Oliveira. Uh, so that's, that's a new generation of Portuguese filmmaker. The next one is a low-budget French film from 2012 uh, by Alvin Case called The Whirlpool, which uh, made its way around a lot of indie film festivals, including Rotterdam and the, uh, the Boston Independent Film Festival. And uh, this is about a couple of strange people who meet, uh, you know, two, two um, uh, Parisian tourists who are both visiting Niagara Falls at the same time. And uh, it's the relationship that evolves, and like French films often do, when strange people meet, man and a woman, and, uh, you know, a toxic affair and pornographic affair and all these movies... Um, it explores the relationship through the through the the unfamiliarity and the the familiarity and the way that they grow. It's actually um, allegedly inspired by a Bruno Dumont film that I can't stand, Twenty Nine Palms, mm. and they apparently pays a bit of homage to Breathless too. I don't really see it. I think this is a much better film than Twenty Nine Palms. Very different film from Breathless, but nonetheless, there it is. And then the last one is by uh, Rathish Ravindran. This is a uh, Malayam film from India. The language is Mal- Mal- Malayalam. Sorry, Malayalam <laughs> language. Yeah, uh, but this is from India, made just last year in 2018. And it's called Pixalia, which is about a guy uh, who has a great job in a big Indian city and uh, but decides he wants to be an, an artist. So he quits his job, becomes uh, an Uber driver, and starts uh, writing a graphic novel. And uh, that is when, right in the middle of all this, a a transgender woman gets into his Uber one day, and that takes everything on a complete and total unexpected left turn. Uh, It is an unusual film for an Indian film, but it, uh, you know, like mostly you hear about Bengali, Tamil, Hindi. There are certain languages that dominate the Indian film Mm -hmm. industry. Mm -hmm. Malayalam is not one of them. No. 
And so this is a very, very different Indian film, very different texture, very different culture, very low budget. Not Bollywood. Not at all Bollywood. It is the flip side to Bollywood. Mm. So if you want to see another side to uh, Indian film, uh, this is one to, to definitely check out. Uh, it was, uh, you know, it was. A, I don't want to call it a queer film uh, because it is even technically an LGBT film, mm-hmm. technically. Mm-hmm. But there's more going on culturally. It mm-hmm. is an Indian film. It is very much as much about India as anything else. Yeah. Uh, a couple of these. Yeah. Let's, do, uh, let's, uh, let's it, wrap it out with uh, those. Uh, Stanley and uh, Stanley uh, and George Abbott edited yep. again uh, the musical Pajama Game, adapting as a film, starring the beautiful, beautiful Doris Day. This is the sexiest Doris. Uh, ever allowed herself to be sort of uh, yep. in a pajama game. Poster, pajama game in that little sort of short nighty great legs doors. Uh, the, the same, these are all the same people from Dam- Damn Yankees Richard Atler and Jerry Ross doing the uh, music choreography by Bob Fosse again. Um, uh, you know, it's 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 a this is this is a fun this is a fun film uh, like all of those films were back in the day. Um, it's it's funny that this is about um, um, uh, the the fact the workers at the factory are fighting for a seven cent raise. Nice. That's, that's what they're fighting for. Yep. A, a raise. Roadhouse murder. Um, uh, it's sort of a wacky David O. Selznick production about this this, this couple that finds a, a double murder at this at this inn out in the <laughs> middle of nowhere, and the guy who's a reporter decides to incriminate himself for the crime, hiding evidence that will exonerate him later, hoping that he'll be able to write a story uh, that will launch his re- uh, career as a reporter. It works out badly. And now we have a very very special portion of the podcast: a a rare live in studio interview. Uh, of the filmmaker who made a film we talked about earlier. Uh, we're talking about director Pamela Green, who made Be Natural, the untold story of Alice Guy Blachet. Uh Pamela, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. And thank you for your film. I, I want to start off by reading something to you. Uh, Robert Harris, the archivist who restored Lawrence of Arabia and Spartacus and many other fine films, is a friend and a friend of this podcast. And I was trading some emails with him earlier in the week. On a completely different subject, and he had no idea that you were going to be here, and he said, um, uh, he just volunteered in his email, he said, just watch the Alice Guy Blachet doc, amazing. And I answered him, and I said, that's good to know, we're going to be interviewing the filmmaker for our podcast. And he said, please tell her for me, that is one of the finest docs I've seen on film history. Wow. So... I wanted I wanted you to hear that. I'm blushing. Yes. <laughs> he so said would. he said you would. Yeah. He said I would blush. He said I, he said I, he was going to make you blush when he told you that. That's exactly. that was that was the goal. Um, but uh, you know, can Harris, I get his email to thank him? I, I would be happy to. He would be he would love to hear from you. I absolutely will. I absolutely will. Um, and and I have to agree. And we have seen tons of docs in film history. You know, I went to film school and was told that Edwin S. Porter in the uh, the Great Train Robbery invented the close up. You put an end to that in your film, and and you learn, and we all learn, and it clearly we're not alone. That that Alice Guy basically pioneered a lot of things that a lot of men have been taking credit for for decades. Talk a little bit about that. I did not go to film school. Okay. Uh, this movie is my film school, uh, and the reason why I decided to take this on was because um, I feel sometimes subjects pick you. It's a, it's a weird thing, but I feel in a way that she looked at me and said, I'm in the wrong box. Um, I'm being misrepresented. Can you help me? And um, I felt robbed that I didn't know about her. Um, 
and I felt that she was robbed in a way. Um, so it became an obsession to correct the record. There's so many aspects of her that needed uh, corrections as a whole. So I needed to take on early cinema that I knew nothing about to learn who, what, where. I didn't even know who Edwin S. Porter was, honestly. So um, I had to do a lot of sleuthing and a lot of detectiving to really not only correct it, but also show the context with early cinema itself for her. Quite, quite an adventure then. I mean, that's Alice Guy didn't go to film school either, so I, I think that's, that's an appropriate thing. I mean, it does tend to sometimes teach you things that you have to unlearn. But she wanted to start a film school, yeah. which people don't know, but it's in her memoir, so she was on the right track. She, um, Al, Al, Alice Guy was a very, very young woman, uh, born to a Chilean uh, father uh, uh, and a French mother. Talk a little bit about where she came from and how young she was when she sat in that room with the Lumieres and first watched that projection. So I wasn't there, but I, I'm just going by what she was saying and uh, her memoirs. She's such an amazing writer. You know, we talk about her directing, but her writing and her description of things is, is just incredible. Um, I think that's definitely where she came from and for everyone is part of her story. Um, she is born and, and lives with her grandmother for three years, so she learns certain things from her grandmother. Uh, then she goes back to Chile, she has to learn Spanish. Her mom is not really at home, that's kind of unusual for that time. She's uh, tending to the business with the dad. So she learns that you have to work to survive. Uh, she learns the languages and uh, she learns her love for stories. Uh, so then coming back to France later, her father passes away. She's left alone. All her siblings move out. She's left alone with her mother, and she has to support both of them. So she comes across this job uh, taking on stenography, and coincidentally, this place, it's kind of like a, she would call it a Sammy's camera photography place today, um, Leon Gaumont, her boss, is not her boss yet. They're kind of together, side by side, at this same place. And he eventually buys it. Uh, and Gustav Eiffel becomes, like, one of the board members. I mean, it's hard. To, when I say this stuff, it's almost, it's, it sounds fiction. It's an amazing nexus of history. I mean, she's in the middle of everything. Uh, Gaumont, Eiffel. And that was the thing that, that, that the documentary really was a revelation to me because, you know, I've studied silent film history a long time. My father acted in two silent films. I know you're going to do the math and you're going to think that's really weird and you're going to try to figure it out. Don't work on it. The, the, and, and it's an era that really fascinates me. And, and the one thing that has always been like the missing link is connecting the connective tissue that brings the Lumieres to Edison, that brings Europe to the US. It's like these, the, you always learn that these, these two parallel things that sort of evolved at the same time. Alice is the connective tissue. She's the one that connects the two of them. It's what we've been missing all along. Uh, and that's an amazing thing to discover, not just that she is significant in her own right, but she ties Europe to Hollywood or to, to what will eventually become Hollywood, if you can talk to that a little bit. Sure. Um, so. Tying them together, I'll go back to the, the French part uh, first. 
um, people assume there's this one screening and that's it. But there's so many different people that were experimenting at the same time. So she was in the middle of that pocket of, I call it the first class of Silicon Valley of 1895 in a way, because it is kind of like a Silicon Valley. They're all doing this stuff. They're all talking to each other. Who's going to come up with it first? She gets invited to the screening because she happens to be the secretary, and she wants to uh, do whatever she can and, and be bubbly and excited because she wants to survive. The company is kind of new. So that's where she discovers the Lumiere screening, people exiting the factory, and she infuses something that is very special. Why not use film to tell stories? And that's something that we still go by today, but it went on so long, and we're not giving this woman credit. She says it's the Lumieres, but we, we just discussed yeah. that we believe that her uh, gift of storytelling and, and the grammar of what we use today. Um, then she becomes the head of production. She's doing all this stuff. She hires people, including Ben Curry, who ended up becoming the art director for The Wizard of Oz. Um, she ends up coming to the U.S. with her husband. A lot of people say that might have been a mistake, but if she didn't come to the U.S., she wouldn't have started her own studio, which is kind of like the beginning of the studio system, and is making crazy amount of films. Films about racism, immigration, uh, Planned Parenthood, anti-Semitism, uh, women in leading uh, roles in these films. These are all subjects that we're dealing with today, and it's over 100 years later. So is she the only one doing it? No. Is she uh, somebody that's very responsible for creating part of that beginning of Hollywood that we call version 1.0 in Fort Lee, New Jersey that nobody knows about? Absolutely, because it's not just about uh, being part of pioneering the grammar and the taking the training wheels off of this thing we call it cinema. It's also employing people and developing them and pushing the technology and uh, creating new results. And I think that's what's special about her. She was an artist, an entrepreneur, and was technical, which is so rare in one person. There were a number of women uh, working in the industry at the time, scenarists, they called them, and, uh, and they were directing. And talk, talk about that transition. What happened? What happened that took women out of these positions of power and authority? Well, they came later. She's very you know, persistent to say that she was the first female filmmaker for quite some time. So um, what happened was that nobody took this business seriously. And that's one of the reasons why I think Ella succeeded in, in France and then in the US, because it was uh, frowned upon. They thought it wasn't going to survive. And it was just a gimmick. So once the money started rolling in, we have somebody in the film, uh, Steve Ross, saying when Wall Street came in the front door, women uh, were shoved out the back door. It became more of an assembly line. Uh, you couldn't be a producer, director, writer, all these different roles. It was divided up. And um, women were no longer of interest, and the men took over. One thing that I... Uh, 
really love about your film is that it is technically so expert. Uh, again, we see a lot of documentaries, and it's oftentimes a lot of talking heads and some, you know, the the, uh, the moving moving in on stills, and everything is very very dry. Your film is filled with animations, with uh, with with all kinds of vibrant, energetic stuff that really brings that era and her life back to life. And it, it it's part it's one of the things that makes it so engrossing is your filmmaking makes her filmmaking more alive for us now. Um, was that a conscious thing on your part, um, or was that more instinctual? Uh, it was definitely conscious. Um, I watch a lot of documentaries. I don't watch all of them, but I get bored if I see a drifting picture for eternity and nothing else is happening. It drives me crazy. Um, I knew from the very beginning for hours if I was going to do something, I had to go all the way out because otherwise it wasn't going to stick. People had done work before. What's going to set it apart from the usual uh, cookie cutter beginning, middle, and end? Um, and honestly, I, didn't, I knew I was going to find things, but I didn't know how much I was going to find. So... Uh, these pieces help move the story along and for definitely for a modern audience uh, of 2019. And by the way, I was condemned for a lot of this by many historians. Like, why does she need all the animation? She should just do, she should have just had the interviews of Alice on camera and then the recordings. We don't need to see all that other stuff. They were all men who said that, weren't they? No, there's some women too. Oh, were there? Cinephiles. Okay, well, they're, well, they're wrong. They're yeah. wrong. <laughs> I didn't, I, I mean, I made it for everybody, but my main focus was not cinephiles except for accuracy and sharing new information. I actually made it for 14-year-olds, you know, 15-year-old girls. Um, the girls that work with me are in their 20s. They love it. They cry. Um, boys cry too. Men cry too. And they're, uh, they're excited. They're uh, going with the momentum and um, the speed of the documentary and excited about what's next and they want to watch it again and again. There's a former USC student that has come to five screenings now. He, he just loves it. And he, he's like, I'm waiting for the Blu-ray. Well, I'm giving you a free Blu-ray. <laughs> so I think Hollywood and the historians, everybody's always going to have an opinion, but um, I know what I made it for, and I made it for all ages, like a Pixar-esque movie, so everybody can feel like they're part of it, you're not excluded, you know who everybody is, um, and you're on this journey watching this determined, amazing survivor go out there and, and make it happen. There's a bit of a, a finding your roots sort of segment to, or aspect of the film too where we, we go through these sort of family trees, one of which takes us through St. Louis quite a lot, my hometown, uh, where I, I, I guess it was her one of her cameramen, uh, his, his ancestors were. Talk a little bit about that sort of detective story, family tree sort of thing that you were doing there. Well, one of the things was, for me, I was more interested in finding other people talking about Alice. Because to me, if somebody else talks about someone, it's always stronger than the person, like, I did this, I did that. Well, no, it's better if somebody else talks about it. So um, when I started, I wanted to 
find film, descendants, people that might have worked with her, people that might have talked about her. And of course, um, Hitchcock mentions her. And then through some of that other research, Sergei Eisenstein saw her film but didn't know it was her, which is wonderful. Um, but I started going through her address book. I'm like, there's got to be somebody <laughs> alive because she died in 1968. Uh, so I just kept looking, 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 and there was this name pin that kept coming up. And there's so many of them. But it was really pin, but I just thought of it as pin and pins, like so many. And um, I called this woman, and it just, she said, wow, that really sounds familiar. And then she hooked me up with all these other people on the phone, and I documented it, as you see in the film. And it ended up being that they were all related to this cameraman who happened to be her nephew. And they all kind of looked like her, Alice's siblings. And there was something earlier in the film that I cut out. Um, ben Carey, who was a production uh, designer, art director, was uh, uh, given an honorary award last year who did The Wizard of Oz and Phantom of the Opera. He was left in charge when she left France to watch over this nephew. And I was like, I wonder who the hell that nephew is. And the whole time <laughs> when I'm talking to this Pin family, they're related to that nephew. So making that whole connection was just, uh, it's unbelievable. It's like a, a gift in documentary filmmaking. Yeah. So, and I love them. I'm actually going to St. Louis. Um, we got another booking to a theater there and they're so excited. They've never seen the film and they're all making sure it sells out and they're going to be talking on the stage for the first time. It's just, it's a wonderful thing. They're like, Partially my family now. I, I hope it's at the high point. It's a beautiful, grand old theater. The, 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 this, that film would be perfect for I get it. When will you be there? Uh, August 30th. It's at the Chase Park. Oh, the Chase Park Plaza. Yes. That's fantastic. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. And not far from my mom. I'll make sure she comes. Perfect. So I, I, one of the things that I'm very always, always focused on, my wife's a producer, so I've seen her go through the, the, the sexism ringer in the business, which can too often pit women against each other because they 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 sense that it has to be more competitive uh and you know i'm very i have a six-year-old daughter so i'm very aware of what she sees as opportunities and you know we had a very interesting experience at disneyland some weeks ago on the the soren ride where there are pictures of all these famous pilots and they're mostly men and there's you know one or one or two women there amelia Earhart and maybe one or two others and my daughter says to me she says are can women be pilots too and you know, I, I almost wanted to cry. And I wonder how many women, if they had known this story before, would have thought it's not entirely a male industry. How many women were discouraged from film careers because Alice's life was not publicized, her accomplishments were not publicized? I mean, we don't know, but do you, have you gotten a sense of that? I just, uh, I try to offer Skype or phone calls for Q&As in different theaters, and there was a theater yesterday in uh, Akron, Ohio. And this woman said, I wish I knew about her earlier because it would have changed the traje trajectory of my film career. I would have been stronger, I would have been tougher, et cetera. And I'm not, I'm in film, but not in the same way. Uh, when I did the Kickstarter, a woman, I mean, I get emails all the time. It it actually affected me because my day job at the time was predominantly male designers and animators. There weren't that many women. 
And I was like, where are these women? And uh, people that I worked with would say, well, what do you know about editing? And, you know, do you know this filmmaker? And, you know, you need to know this. And I would go home or feel like really insecure because I didn't know this stuff or am, am I good enough, et cetera. So the more I was working on Alice, the more I became stronger and I got actually really upset about it. And a lot of those people are no longer in my life <laughs> because you can do anything you put your mind to. And that's why I made this. I want young girls to see this badass <laughs> Alice going out there doing all this stuff when it wasn't even thought of as a whole for women to be doing anything like that. So, um, yes, and anytime I can, I tell little girls, you can do anything. I share Alice's story. And by the way, in my research, I found even more women pilots, so they should be putting more pictures up. Um, I've complained at uh, schools or festivals where I've looked at the walls and it's all uh, alumni men. And I was like, you better change that wall like if you want to see me again because that is unacceptable. So I think Alice, uh, there should be a, an award named after her at the Academy. Uh, I've been talking to the museum for five years. I know there's a place for her in there. I made sure of that. But um, she should be a household name that we always mention and don't have to worry, like, what director again? And what about all the other women that weren't recorded and documented? There's so m There were 60 in the teens that mm. this woman at Columbia, Jane Gaines, has been um, working on. She says, are you going to do that? And I was like, no, I'm not doing a documentary about that. But I want this film to succeed because then it opens the door for other stories like this to be told and get financed. Mm -hmm. And Hollywood did not finance this movie. It was Kickstarter and amazing, amazing donors. Uh, you know, I said the Gina Davis Institute, Madeline DeNono introduced me to this woman named Jalen Dreyfus. She brought on Regina Scully, Jamie Wolfe, Hugh Hefner, mm. um, which people look at as a surprise, but he's helped so many women in the private sector. He just doesn't talk about it. Mm. it, it it's interesting, too. Al uh, Alice Gee, director, of course, but also a producer, also a studio executive. So when you look at her, when young women look at her, they're seeing the, the across the board what can be done. A successful studio. That studio in New Jersey was very, very successful and uh, for quite a long time. Um, uh, Gina Davis, uh, speaking of her institute, that documentary that uh, that, that she has out right now about um, uh, the uh, well, the disparity of position. It seems like these two films belong together somehow. Like they 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 should be floating around the world. Gina, of course, is in your film. Yes. Um. Um. Uh, somehow, it seems like they belong together in the world. Yes, I mean, they're, they're different in some respects because it's showing. Well, no, I guess you're right because women need to be shown more on screen in these different roles so it gives um, confidence to girls about what they're watching, you know, like Brave, you know, et cetera, and all these different amazing heroes. Um, I think Alice is a little bit different in the fact that um, the movie I, I was talking earlier um, anytime you do any kind of research in academic world, and I'm, I'm not an academic, I think I might be one now, I don't know, but um, I'm a detective, 
keep it at that, detective journalist. Um, they take on a slice because budgetarily they can't afford it, and also it's whatever their thesis is, the work. I took on the whole pizza of reintroducing early cinema through a modern lens with all this new information. So yes, it's Alice's story. Of course, I've corrected her record, and it shows that it's been a problem. But also, it shows early cinema and really what really was going on. Because I don't think it's been properly investigated. Well, a lot of textbooks are going to have to be rewritten. You've just made a lot of textbooks, including textbooks that I used as a student and as a teacher. You've made them obsolete. Uh, there are all kinds of assertions there. You've got to take some satisfaction in knowing that you're sending them all back to the, 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 the drawing board. Um, as we start to wrap up here, a few minutes left, how did you get Jodie Foster? Well, that's interesting. Um, lucky, lucky me. And lucky, lucky Alice. Um, when I first started, you got to figure out who you're going to contact to kind of help you put this all together. And uh, I uh, found Joan Simon's book online. Joan Simon uh, co-wrote the film with me. Uh, she had done, um, she had curated a show for the Whitney in 2009 for Alice's work, and because of her, a lot of films got restored and preserved. Um, we met uh, after emailing and talking on the phone and she said who are you going to get as your narrator and I was like I don't know I'm thinking you know the French etc and she's like why don't you get Jodie Foster and John Simon's funny like that because she'll tell me something that's like completely impossible and she knows my personality I'll just go and do it so coincidentally I was possibly going to work on one of Jodie's films and it, it didn't work out and then uh, I never asked for favors in this town, but I said, look, I need a favor. I'd like to be introduced to Jody's assistant. And I got introduced, and we conversed via email, and she says, well, I think the best thing for me to do would be to narrate. <laughs> well, yes, thank you. So we met in person, and um, she recorded the trailer on the spot, and then I didn't see her for a couple of years because I had to go get the funding, et cetera. And... Then we started talking. I would show her um, cuts because the key was to get it all in one piece. And my first cut was two hours and 45 minutes. And I was terrified. I'm like, oh, my God, I don't even know how to edit. I never edited a film before. I have papers in sideways. I have flash cuts. Stuff is off. The mouth is, is not matching with the audio and some of this stuff. She is definitely going to say, you know what, Pamela, I just don't think it was for me. And she didn't. She wrote a long email saying how wonderful this stuff is and it's going to take time for it to get shaped and we'll go from there. And I sent her a recorder when I was ready. She recorded the first part from home. I had myself in their temp and she matched it exactly to when I was cutting it in. It matched exactly where my voice was hitting. And she's been nothing but the ultimate professional supporter She's a director as well, and um, never overstepped, and always advised when asked, and I think she's one of the most amazing people I've ever met. Mm. I have to ask you about the potential of or interest in a feature film. Uh, the equivalent in man would, ha would have a feature film. So what do you think? Well, originally, I didn't know what to do with Alice, and if I was selfish, I would have made a narrative. 
because everybody wants to go and make a narrative first because that's like you get the actress, etc. But I wanted to correct her record, which at times was very painful. You know, the money, the working, etc. Um, Alice and I are a little bit on a break right now. <laughs> <laughs> I love her. And, um, you know, when I see her face here, you know, we see some clips. It's, uh, you know, I, I have a very special feeling towards her in, in my heart. But um, if I would do that, it would have to be very specific. I am a perfectionist, and I kind of need a little bit of a break. I'm still in theatrical. It is coming out on DVD. It's on VOD right now. I have another story that I want to do in between. It's about... Um, it's a true story about a woman before Alice so believe it or not I went even back further in time I want to be torturing myself more I guess um, but yes I, I would love to but that requires a lot of money and nobody's asked me so uh, I'd have to go get the funding myself etc so well Tim took my question uh, which I which I knew he would. Uh, so I'm I'm uh, that's just uh, that's where all of our minds are going. So I we do hope you the best. Uh, so we'll wrap this up now. Uh, Pamela Green, thank you so much. The film is Be Natural: The Untold Story of Alice Guy Blachet. Everyone should go and see this, whether it's VOD or DVD. I recommend you buy the DVD so it's right there on the shelf to show people and to show your daughters, as I'm going to show mine. Uh, Pamela Green, thank you so much for your movie and for, for being here with us today. Thank you so much.